Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on Air. On tonight's program, melanoma, what you need to know and the diagnosis that faces former President Jimmy Carter. If your melanoma is metastatic in many way, anyway, the prognosis is really not so good. So the trick is to get it early enough that a small in-office surgery is sufficient to cure. Plus, we'll take a look at the benefits of family therapy. Marriage is a battle between two families to see whose family will be recreated in the next generation. His crazy family or her crazy family. <laughs> and we examine the long-term effects of corporal punishment on children. They actually have internalizing behaviors like depression and anxiety, but then externalizing behaviors like aggression. We'll get some expert advice and hear a piece from our healing muse. And that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On tonight's show, we take a look at family therapy. Who is it meant to help and is it effective? Plus, the long-term effects of corporal punishment on children. How do they manifest themselves? But first, all about melanoma and former President Jimmy Carter's battle with this powerful disease. Skin cancer is the most common kind of cancer in the United States, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and melanoma is the deadliest form of it. According to the National Cancer Institute, an estimate, estimated 76,000 Americans will be diagnosed with melanoma, and almost 10,000 will die from the disease this year. Melanoma recently made headlines when former President Jimmy Carter's liver surgery for a small growth proved to be an advanced case of the disease. Well, here to help us understand all of this is Dr. Ramzi Farah, Associate Professor of Medicine and Pathology and the Division Chief of Dermatology at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Farah. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. So, former President Jimmy Carter has melanoma, but I thought melanoma was a skin cancer, and this is his, in his liver. Can you explain this? Sure. So melanoma predominantly is a skin cancer because it arises out of melanocytes, which are the cells in our skin that give us color. But, um, you know, melanocytes arise from an area... Uh, of development called the neural crest. And as the fetus is developing, these melanocytes uh, can migrate to other parts of the body. So even though most of them are in the skin, you find them in the eye, in the GI tract, you find them in the lining of the brain, the leptomeninges. And so anywhere where you have melanocytes, you can get a melanoma. And um, so you can sometimes get melanoma arising out of these um, non-traditional areas like the brain and the eye, but mostly it's from the skin. Very interesting. That's something I think most people really had no clue of. Right. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a bit, but how do they, what are the cause, you know, what causes the melanocytes to kind of go awry? Do we know? Well, we, we know uh, some of the story, not uh, all of the story. Uh, and like many uh, areas in cancer development, it's a combination of your genetic makeup and how that genetic makeup interacts with the environment. So in talking about the environment, we know that uh, sunburn type injury and UV exposure can be one of the triggers to cause DNA mutations in these melanocytes, and therefore they can make them go awry and become cancerous. And there are uh, genetic susceptibilities. Some melanomas run in cancers. There are some- You mean in families? In, in families, I right, beg your pardon. Right, yeah. right. And uh, the genes uh, are inherited and they give you these susceptibilities. And basically, the inheritance uh, is due to how the genes affect certain proteins. And those proteins have a role to play in cell signaling and cell division. Sometimes they turn cells off, and sometimes they turn them on. And if these uh, genes linked to these proteins are affected, then sometimes your cells don't turn off. Wow. And that's the definition of cancer. That's interesting. So let's get to what 
Are the environmental issues or what other factors might play a role? You've alluded to UV light. Help us understand, you know, what would make someone more susceptible apart from their genetic makeup? Sure. So apart from those genetic, uh, those specific uh, gene abnormalities, inherited abnormalities, um, certain uh, things can affect your risk factor. Number one, uh, how much intrinsic pigment you have in your skin. So whether you're dark-skinned or light-skinned, blonde-haired or or blue-eyed, so that has an effect because... So, so is, the, is the pigment protective? It, it is. In other words, a fairer-skinned person who might have less pigment would have less protection from this potential DNA change. Definitely. So the whole idea behind the melanocytes that give us color is that they produce melanin. And melanin is the chemical that absorbs ultraviolet light radiation, kind of like a bulletproof vest, and it protects the cells. But sometimes we get so much UV exposure that even that bulletproof vest is not sufficient. So the incidence of melanomas, uh, for example, in very dark pigmented individuals is maybe 1 20th what it is in Northern Europeans. So number one, how light-skinned or dark-skinned you are. Of course, how much uh, UV exposure you've had. And this is particularly important when it's in childhood. A lot of the sun damage we see in people who are adults, they acquire it before the age of 12. And so there's a large, long latency period for it to show up. But UV exposure is, is certainly another aspect, uh, specifically uh, at a young age group. Um, uh, the, in, the place where you live. So uh, the earth has protected us with, a, with an ozone uh, layer that filters some of this UV. So in areas where there's an ozone hole, you have the highest rates of melanoma. So for example, in Queensland, Australia, they have the highest rate of melanoma in the world. Other areas where, for example, you may find light-skinned individuals of, of European descent, but in very sunny areas like Israel, has a very high rate of melanoma. The southwest of America has a very high rate of melanoma. So uh, where you live, uh, the type of skin you have, how much exposure you've gotten over your lifetime, and of course, you know, the genetic makeup that you have all play a role. And is it possible that if you have a tendency to have a lot of moles on your body, does that also make you maybe more susceptible? Sure, that's an excellent point. The more moles you have, the more risk you have. Also, you can qualify that a little bit. If your moles are a little bit funny looking, and by funny looking we mean uh, asymmetries, jagged borders, more than one color. These are what we refer to as having dysplastic features or atypical clinical features. And if your moles exhibit these, you have a higher risk. The, the general sort of uh, rule is if you have 50 or more moles, that puts you at a higher risk, whether they're funny looking or not. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with dermatologist Dr. Ramsey Farah. We're talking about melanoma. So how does one know if they have melanoma, meaning what are the symptoms that somebody might recognize? Sure. So um, you want to look at the criteria that are um, designated as the A, B, C, D, E's of melanoma. And those are uh, sort of the blueprint for how you should evaluate a mole. And so A refers to asymmetry. If you can cut the mole in your mind's eye and it's symmetric, any way you cut it, that's good. <clears throat> if it's asymmetric, it's not so good. B is border. The border has to be nice and smooth, not jagged, like a map. C is color. We like um, shades of tan or brown. Uh, we like one color, uh, maybe two, but not more. And certain colors we don't like, like red, white, and blue. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are the patriotic colors of the flag. So, But you don't want them in, in your mole. And then D is diameter. It should be uh, six millimeters or less. And lastly, E is evolution. And this is very important. So there's a high risk of a mole uh, being malignant or turning malignant if it evolves. And that's what the E stands for, evolution. So again, changes in shape, size, or color, a sudden growth, sudden symptoms like itching or pain or bleeding. Those are the things, at least on your skin, that you need to look for. How about hidden melanomas? So we were just talking earlier about during evolution or during the baby's development, mm -hmm. the fetal development, these melano melanocytes, I guess, can end up in different parts of the body. 
you know, hearkening back to this thing with Jimmy Carter. So, although I will talk more about that, we don't know that that's what exactly happened in mm -hmm. his case. But so, are there places that can be hidden from the eye, for example? Yes, and these uh, pose really a challenge for us to diagnose. Um, so as you alluded to, there are certain areas in the body that melanomas can arise from, and there's really no way uh, to screen or examine those areas of the body. Uh, so for example, the lining of the brain, the, uh, the, the GI tract, the GU tract, the eyes, they can develop in the eyes. Now the eyes, at least you can have an ophthalmologist uh, check your eyes when you go for your yearly eye exam. So that's less problematic than the other areas. There are some sneaky areas where melanoma arises. So you can get them on the toes or under the nail, and those are referred to as acral melanomas. Those can be extremely aggressive melanomas, and interestingly, the incidence of these acral melanomas is exactly the same, whether you're African American or Caucasian. So that's kind of an interesting so sidebar. So it may suggest that it doesn't have as much to do with the exposure to UV yes, light in that case. That, that's right. And there's one other type of melanoma called an amelanotic melanoma. So if you remember when we were talking about the ABCDs, we talked a lot about color. Amelanotic melanomas are melanomas that have no color. Wow. So they just look like a skin bump with no color, but it's a melanoma. And those are almost impossible to detect. It's usually only uh, luck if you detect such a melanoma. So basically, when or how do you, as, as an individual, knowing all of these potential hazards, when and how often should you see a doctor in terms of these kinds of evaluations, skin checks or whatever? Sure. So uh, the, cr the criteria are not really set in stone. You sort of have to have a, a, a reasonable discussion with your doctor and uh, both of you can decide. But there are certain individuals who I see every six months, for example. There are certain individuals I see every year. Some I see every four months. And it relates to whether you've had a melanoma before, if you have a family history of melanoma, if you're a very moly person, if your doctor looks at your skin and sees a lot of uh, sun damage, all of those factors indicate that you are at a higher risk and you would be more likely to develop a skin cancer, not just melanoma, um, and you should get a yearly skin exam. And I would uh, add that um, you don't have to wait until middle age to get a yearly skin exam. In fact, the highest incidence uh, uh, of cancer in women under 25 is melanoma. Wow. So I, and I've diagnosed melanoma in 20 and 30 year olds. So really depending on your family history and your sun exposure history, any time in your 20s or so is a good idea to have a full body exam once a year. What are the treatments that are most kind of conventional or commonplace, you know, common these days for treatment of melanoma? So to date, really the best uh, course of therapy is early detection and prevention. Once you get a melanoma, the standard of care is surgical excision. And how large the excision is and whether you do lymph node studies or not depends entirely on how deep the melanoma is measured at the time of diagnosis. Uh, so there are chemotherapy treatments, there are immune therapies, etc. Uh, I don't know that any of these are standard per se. Uh, people are still learning about them and trying to find the best combination. As a general rule, if if your melanoma is metastatic in many way, any way, the meaning it's moved on it's, to other organ systems. That's or what have right. You. The prognosis is really not so good. So the trick is to get it early enough that a small in-office surgery is sufficient to cure it. Well, getting back to Jimmy Carter and the little bit of time we have left, he's, his melanoma was in his liver. Mm -hmm. Do you think it was primarily in the liver or it came from somewhere else? Almost undoubtedly, it came from somewhere else. And uh, like we alluded to, it could have come from the eyes or the brain or certainly the skin. Sometimes we can't find that primary, even if it's from the skin. And so it remains a mystery. And I think in his case, it's going to be a mystery where it came from. And lastly, he's getting a very, this new modern biologic type of therapy, immunotherapy. Just briefly, give us a little bit of a thumbnail about what that is. So uh, that's basically uh, an antibody that targets a receptor on the cell. And when it binds to that receptor, uh, on a T cell, which is a cell in your immune system, 
it lets that T cell grow and attack the melanoma. Normally, T cells have some natural breaks on them so that they don't attack every cell in your body. So when the T cells are sleeping, they're not going to attack the melanoma. And this medicine basically awakens the, C cell, the T cell so it can awaken its brothers and sisters and they all attack the melanoma. So it's basically taking the breaks off our immune system and allowing our own body to basically fight the disease. Exactly. And I think, isn't that kind of the direction we're heading in cancer? It is, and it seems very promising. And I have no doubt that we will make great headways in the future, but as of now, it's still early detection and surgery. Thank you so much. This has been incredibly enlightening, very, very helpful and important information. My guest has been Dr. Ramsey Farah, Associate Professor of Medicine and Pathology and the Division Chief of Dermatology at Upstate Medical University. Next up, family therapy. How does it work and who does it help? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air, Linda Cohen along with you. Well, the concept of family therapy to offer remediation for the mental health problems of an individual gained popularity in the second half of the last century through the work of founders like Dr. Carl Whittaker. We'll hear with more on how this evolved and the efficacy of this approach is Dr. David Keith. He's professor of psychiatry and the director of family therapy in the Department of Psychiatry at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Keith. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Nice to be here. So let's begin by defining for our listeners what we mean by the term family therapy. What is it exactly? Well, uh, to be very simple, it means you have the whole family come in for uh, the interview and then for subsequent interviews. And that's not an easy task. Uh, so that as in the modern era, it's become, I think, harder and harder for therapists to get families to come in. And part of our way of working is organized around how to start. We call it the battle for structure, how you get the whole family to come in. It's always easy to get the mother and the child to come in, uh, but it's more difficult to get men to come in. And what was the basis? I guess I, I want to find out more about Dr. Whitaker and his influence yeah. here, but where did the basis, the concept kind of come from that, the, that this was a beneficial way to approach the mental health issues mm. of one family member? Well, it comes out of... Uh, I don't know, kind of a quantum shift in how we think about human experience that goes back to around the 60s. There's a whole lot of things emerged at that time in physics. Uh, and so in the mental, in psychiatry, people started thinking about how do relationships affect this person? And we knew that they did because uh, we'd worked this was before my time, but you'd work with somebody in the hospital and they'd get better and they'd learn how to handle relationships. They'd go home for a weekend pass and they'd come back regressed. So then the psychiatrist started thinking about, let's see, why is it going, why is this happening and what's the family have to do with it? Thus, uh, we paid more attention to relationships and systems of relationships. So it's basically the family system was seen as either the origin of the yes. problem or a way of helping remediate yeah. the problem. Yeah, and I say uh, I don't really believe in people. I, I believe in families or I believe in systems of relationships. So uh, who, is, who is Carl Whitaker then? Carl Whitaker uh, was a psychiatrist who I met when I went to Wisconsin in 1971 to do my residency. I didn't know anything about him. Uh, I went there for another reason. Uh, but I was very taken with what he was doing. Uh, he was a very uh, inventive, creative, thoughtful guy. And so I, it, he happened to be part of the psychiatric training, but it was something that I really got engaged with. And uh, at that time... 
family therapy was kind of like a movement inside of psychiatry, community mental health, the mental health world. Um, and it was interesting. It, what, uh, what was his basic premise? I mean, what was he trying to do either well, the same as or differently than some of the things we just chatted about? I think, I think he was trying to make sure that uh, caring for patients remained a human project and not a theoretical one. And uh, a lot of his early work was with schizophrenia and very disturbed kids. And so he developed ways of working. I mean, you can't use cognitive methods with schizophrenic people. You have to figure out how to be indirect so you keep them engaged or you invite their engagement, likewise with kids. And uh, he was quite good at it. I, um, I say of him, I mean, there was a lot of inventive people uh, in the world at that time working on family therapy. I say he was kind of the Picasso of those creative people. Uh, and once again, he saw, he saw the family as the client, not simply yes. an individual in the family. Yeah, he had been the chairman of psychiatry at uh, Emory University, the first chairman, 1945, and then was doing individual therapy, and uh, but more and more family therapy. When he came to Wisconsin, he came there with the idea, I will only see families, and so that's what he was doing. I read I a there. quote that he once met, uh, said to an interviewer, which I think is kind of profound, that every marriage is a battle between two families struggling to reproduce themselves. That's right, yeah. So he, what he was really saying was every new family that comes together <clears throat> is the result of two prior families who are somehow trying to figure yeah. out yeah, that's, a way of reproducing yeah. their, their yeah, family. Yeah, you're grasping kind of the fullness of this idea that the uh, yeah marriage is a battle between two families to see whose family will be recreated in the next generation, his crazy family or her crazy family. <laughs> right. But then to go further, when I'm talking about working with a family, I'm sure. thinking of at least three generations. Uh, so oh, really? If the child comes in because the child's depressed or the child is being defiant, uh, I see them with the parents, but I always get the grandparents to come in as part of the of the therapy. That's so that, that's fantastic, yeah. and but as you said, that seems to be somewhat has to be somewhat of a challenge at the same time. Uh, it is, but you learn how to do it. There's a as I say in the book that uh, psychotherapy is an art, and there's an art to doing it. Uh, Clearly, that, there's an art. That's right. Yeah, it requires a mixture of force and grace. So it sounds like Dr. Whitaker's approach, by some accounts, was somewhat unorthodox. Why yeah. did they think that? Um, I think because he had so much spontaneity to him. He was uh, uh, he was a naturally playful man, um, uh, inventive, did things that struck people as outrageous. Um, it would be a little bit like uh, Thelonious Monk coming to the Syracuse Symphony and, and trying to, you know, he's inventive. He's, yeah. not, the, he's not playing standard He's not in the music. box. He's out of the box, right. way out of the box. But he invites those in the box to think more openly about what they're doing. So, so what exactly is experiential, his experiential approach? <laughs> what, I mean, I know... No, There's a lot to that, but... <laughs> well, I, I uh, knew you'd ask me that question, and I'll start off by saying there's not a good, clear answer to it, except I say, I hope this isn't too abstract, but that experiential therapy is a therapy beyond interpretation. In other words, we think about uh, people come to the practitioner's office, they describe their problem, and the person tries to characterize it so that they can understand it, they interpret it. We don't do that. We interact with it so as to create a new experience, to sometimes confuse how they think about the problem. In this day and age, a lot of people show up at the clinic because they know what they need. They found out on the internet what medication they or their child need. They have a treatment program, they just need to find a doctor to enact it for them. We don't do that we challenge their way of thinking about the problem. It's interesting. It's not unlike what we know about learning theory, that the most effective way to learn is through experience. And then sure. in a sense, yeah. you're really saying that to relearn some emotional 
uh, ways in the world, so to speak, that you need to experience different ways of maybe thinking about them, ex- feeling about them, yeah. interacting with others around them. So yeah, no, that's that's true. And and one of the interesting things about family therapy, alongside of psychiatry, is it's informed by all kinds of disciplines. It doesn't it doesn't have a central uh, uh, theory theology, uh, right? Uh, there are theological systems inside of it, but, but one of the things that attracted me to it was there was a lot to wonder about in that era. We didn't have all the medications we do now. Thus, we looked everywhere for how for to answers. think about problems. Yeah. If so, you're just joining us, excuse yeah. me, you're oh. listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm Linda Cohen along with psychiatrist Dr. David Keith. We're talking about family therapy and one of its founders, Dr. Carl Whitaker. Yeah. I interrupted you. What well, I was going to say, so a, a tenet of experiential therapy is that experience makes for change. Uh, insight follows experience, and generally we... In, therapy work people tend to think that insight leads to a new experience but but so what what does the therapist have to play a role in assisting the individual or family for interpreting that insight in other words they may have the insight but to then carry it on yeah except ours i mean so language can be used to characterize experience but language can also be used to create experience right uh, the way we might reframe a symptom changes their experience of it. That's an experience. Uh, it's an experience that disrupts their thinking. Um, and so reframing is an important component. Yeah, yeah. Seeing things differently, seeing the way, the taking the very same circumstance and perhaps putting a different quote-unquote frame on it. Yes, and... Uh, I teach a, fam- a family therapy seminar with a colleague, and for the first five years of our teaching together, he'd say, Keith, what do you do anyway? And I'd say, I do what I'm talking about. And he'd say, well, I don't get it. So in about the sixth year, he said, I know what you do, Keith. You destabilize the family. And uh, <laughs> that's that's what experiential therapy does. It destabilizes, but uh, we don't run for it then destabilization opens up possibilities. It's the first step. And I remain there prepared to deal with whatever happens from the disruption. That's very interesting. Those are the subsequent interviews. So you just wrote a book about Carl Whitaker and um, basically, let's see, it's called where is the name of the book? You want me to tell you? I have it right here. Or I did. It's continuing the experiential approach of of Carl Whitaker, Process, Practice, and Magic. Okay. Why did you write the book? Uh, I wrote it, actually, Carl died in 95, and I was here then. Uh, He died in Wisconsin. And uh, one of the organizations I belong to, the American Family Therapy Academy, had a meeting in June. A friend of mine put on a seminar uh, to meet to talk about Carl and his effect on us. Uh, it was a group of about 35, 40 people, uh, kind of a reflecting, warm seminar. A journalist shows up, a guy who writes about psychotherapy, who knew and admired Carl. And he said, you're all, you're all speaking warmly and with admiration about Carl Whitaker, but he could be insulting, he could be sarcastic. Uh, is this something we should be doing more of? Why would anybody want to spend an hour with a crazy man? Well, nobody said anything, and I thought, well, I worked with him the closest and the longest. I better have something to say, so I tried. I didn't do a very good job. Uh, afterwards, my wife walked me around the city of Cambridge for a while <laughs> while I was while I was uh, upset. Then I went home and I started an essay called Crazy Man, and I was trying to talk about what it was that Carl Whitaker did. And... But that was in 95, and then it went to sleep, and then it started again. And the last 10 years is when I, so this when was, I wrote it. So this is an attempt to be a tribute to him and his work. Uh, that's only one part of it. It's What I say in the book is that this looks like a history of family therapy, but it's not. I'm writing about the process of family therapy, which exists outside of time. And I say the book is about therapeusis, and uh, at the time I... Came up, I invented that word because and I was, I was, it means it it refers to the abstract energetic core of the psychotherapeutic process. 
That's an abstract idea. But the point of it is that the, the relationship is what is critical. And it doesn't make too much difference what kind of theory comes with the relationship, what kind of words come with the relationship. It's that, that pr personal presence. Uh, so you that's mean a, between that, the therapist and the client? And the client or family. Family. And, uh, so it's a therapeutic process, therapeusis, ther so to speak. Therapeusis, yes, the abstract energetic core. And it's, re it's a abstract idea about a relationship. But this is your term. This is not Dr. Whitaker's term. No, I, in I invented it. Wow. And so it is with, as I, I oftentimes say, that the, the subtitle of this book should be Keith's Catalog of Flawed Explanations. <laughs> and I say that because I don't want this to be viewed as a new theory. It's my thinking about how family therapy works, what Whitaker was up to. Well, in the very little bit of time we have left, does family therapy work? Yeah, it does. In your experience. Not, and it's not, it doesn't cure, it heals. And healing is a, is a repair through growth. Um, so, Very, uh, very, very interesting and inspirational. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing okay. all these great ideas <laughs> with us. My guest has been Dr. David Keith, Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Upstate Medical University. And he is also uh, the Director of Family Therapy in the Department of Psychiatry at Upstate. Um, I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. For some expert advice from the experts at Upstate, Dr. Bernadette Dunn, a clinical instructor of physical medicine and rehabilitation, will talk about what friends and family can do to be helpful to someone who is hospitalized after a stroke. One of the most important things that um, friends and family that are very close to the patient and are going to be involved in some of the care of the patient at home can do for the patient is to come and attend some of the therapy sessions that the patient's involved in during their rehab stay. They can see what the therapists are doing with that patient and have a clue how to help that person um, during the rest of the day when the therapists are not there, often too the therapists will give them some homework per se that will allow them to carry on some of the exercises that the patient's doing um, during the off hours of therapy during the day. Uh, for those that are not as closely related to the patient that won't be involved in the care of the patient um, after the rehab stay, one of the most important things that friends and family can do is just be connected to the patient and the person that's going to be their caregiver. Caregiver burnout is a very um, important issue, and just to be supportive and ask, is you know what what do you need? I think that's one of the most important things. When family and patient or a friend see a patient on the rehab unit, stop in and talk with the nurse that's caring for the patient. Make sure that if you're bringing anything to the patient, particularly in terms of food or drink, that that person doesn't have any swallowing issues or any problems that um, you need to be aware of and if there are any restrictions to the things that you can bring into the patient. But otherwise, just being supportive and being there is one of the most important things that you can do for a person involved in rehab after stroke. Coming up next, the serious long-term consequences of corporal punishment on children. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air, Linda Cohen along with you. 
Well, we've all heard the admonition, spare the rod and spoil the child, suggesting that physical punishment, also known as corporal punishment, is a necessary strategy in raising children. But research seems to point to some negative consequences of such practices. And here with more on all of this is Dr. Megan Jacobs. She's a resident in pediatrics at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Jacobs. Thanks for Hi, coming in. thank you for having me. So let's begin by explaining what we mean by the term corporal punishment. Well, corporal punishment has a lot of definitions, and it depends on who you talk to, what research you look at. Um, one of the best definitions, I think, is by Murray Strauss, who is a professor of sociology and co-director of the Family Research Laboratory at the University of New Hampshire, who in 2000 defined corporal punishment as the use of physical force with the intent to cause physical pain but not physical injury for the purpose of correction or control of a child's behavior. This is pretty similar to what you would find from the American Academy of Pediatrics and a good understanding, I think, of what most people would think of when they think of corporal punishment. A lot of people use the term spanking or other terms such as that that really describe using kind of this physical force but not so far as to injure the child. But the interesting point here is how do you discriminate between that and abuse? In other words, you know, it seems to me that's kind of a a fuzzy line or a slippery slope? That's an excellent question and a, a very good point to make. Um, and one of the reasons that we as pediatricians find corporal punishment um, to be such a, a dangerous thing, it's often used in times of the most frustration by the parent. Um, it's used in times of anger. Um, and there it is a very slippery, slippery, slippery slope, excuse me, yeah. um, that if you are pushing the boundaries too far, you can injure the child, right? So part of that definition of corporal punishment is that you're, you may be hitting, you may be spanking, but you're not leaving marks, you're not leaving lasting bruises. However, if you push that boundary too far, you could certainly leave lasting marks or bruises, and that would push the boundary. Exactly. Now, some places I understand, like Sweden, it's actually illegal mm -hmm. to engage in that kind of behavior. But in the U.S., is it still a common practice? It is a very common practice. Um, actually, Strauss and Stewart in 1999 did a survey of 991 American parents. They interviewed them on the phone, and they asked about slaps on the hands or, or legs, spanking on the buttocks, pinching, shaking, hitting on the buttocks with a belt or a paddle, and slapping on the face. And what they found was a 35% prevalence for infants, so that's under the age of 12 months, a 94% prevalence in ages 3 to 4, which is uh, the toddler period that a lot of people talk about, you know, the terrible twos, the toddler period where they're um, maybe the most active and tend to explore the most. and Maybe hard to control. Exactly. Um, and then the severity, so hitting with belt or paddle, that was actually greatest from ages 5 to 12, where they found a 28% prevalence. Wow. So it's pervasive. Yeah. Now, you've been studying this whole question, I know. So help us understand, I'm going to ask you a lot of questions about what exactly you found in going over the research, but what role do cultural differences play? Because I know that's often brought up that we, you know, we need to be very cognizant of the cultural differences when you take a look at how families discipline their children. Mm -hmm. I think that it's often brought up, the, cult, the culture question, um, but culture encompasses a lot of things. It encompasses race, religion, um, just the household en environment, everything. Um, and I think that it's interesting because a lot of times I think that the race question gets brought up most prevalently. Um, you know, is there a specific ethnicity or race that um, is this is the most common in? And what the research shows is that's actually not the case, um, that it's pervasive in all ethnicities and races. Um, there's a, an interesting article document published by Jennifer Lansard um, it's called The Special Problem of Cultural Differences in Effects of Corporal Punishment. It was published in The Law and Contemporary Problems. Um, and what she showed was that studies vary drastically. And they often show opposite um, outcomes as far as cultural differences and cultural outcomes for corporal punishment. And the conclusion we can draw from that is that it's not just race, that there's, uh, there's something else playing a role, whether that's religion, whether that's regional differences, whether that's any of these other factors, but it's not just race. 
um, and that race can't really be the main reason why people use corporal punishment. That's not the case, um, that it's actually just pervasive in our environment. And there's been a lot of research that shows that um, societies that have social stratification, often corporal punishment is more used in those societies. And it's a way as of socially um, showing your child what that social stratification is like. It's a way of developing their knowledge of what social stratification means. Hmm. And we, we are a socially stratified country. Um, and whether that plays a role in it, I'm not really sure, but mm -hmm. it is a pervasive in our country. And it's, it's something that a lot of parents don't just deem okay. They deem as necessary to developing their child's social, um, cues. Awareness, mm -hmm. knowledge. Well, it's that whole idea of spare the rod and spoil the child that came from somewhere. And somehow the idea is that children need to be shown mm -hmm. how to behave and that some degree of physicality mm -hmm. is important. But some research that you've done or the research that you've done in reviewing the research mm -hmm. is that it has both short-term and long-term effects. So from the short-term effects, I mean, does it bring the desired result of stopping a certain behavior? So actually the spare the rod um, comment actually comes from Proverbs, the mm -hmm. Bible, mm -hmm. which is a commonly um, used phrase in corporal punishment. Um, but as far as the effects go, um, there's the immediate effects in childhood that this causes aggression, delinquent behavior, antisocial behavior, and then a poorer quality of the parent-child relationship, which although all of those are very important, the parent-child relationship is essential to being able to go on with a, um, this child to develop social relationships his or herself. Um, and... I think that that's a, a, a one that's often overlooked, that parents don't like using corporal punishment in general. It's not something that they enjoy doing. And oftentimes when they do this, it starts a very negative loop between them and their child. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm Linda Cohen here along with pediatrician Dr. Megan Jacobs. We're talking about the potentially negative consequences of corporal punishment when it comes to disciplining children. So let's get back to this whole idea. So both short-term, there may be um, a limitation. of the, You may be successful in stopping a behavior that you don't want. But in terms of the long-term consequences, you've just pointed out several things to think about. One is that it seems to increase the, the idea of a child thinking that it's okay to be aggressive because the very behaviors that they're being punished for are being used against them in a way. So it's probably confusing in some level for them to figure out when is it okay to hit and when isn't it okay to hit. And then the other critical thing that you pointed out was that it can damage or interfere with that attachment of parent to child. And that could have many more long-lasting effects, both in terms of the child's ability to attach later on in life to others or maybe their own children going Absolutely. forward. Mm -hmm. So what about cognitive development? So obviously physical aggression is something that tr teaches more physical aggression, but how does it affect the child's development from a, a cognitive standpoint, their intellectual development? So there's been a lot of research that this does cognitively affect children. Um, one such study was Smith et al. in 1997. He performed a large multi-site study looking, looking at outcomes of low birth weight infants. And what they found, and it's interesting, it was specifically in girls, not in boys, but harsh discipline between the ages of 12 and 36 months was associated with an eight-point drop in their IQ score wow. by the age of three. Um, so that was just looking at cognitive. Uh, Berlin et al. in 2009, they did a study of low-income white, African-American, and Mexican-American toddlers. And what they found that was that spanking at the age of one predicted aggressive behavior by the age of two and a lower Bailey mental index score. And that index score um, is a three-component score that includes cognitive, motor, and behavioral. So overall, it was affecting the child's development. Absolutely. I found something very interesting, too, when I was reading some of this information, that um, the use of verbal methods for discipline through explanation and reasoning were actually providing the child with more cognitive stimulation. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't only than perhaps corporal punishment would do, so that it wasn't only that you were... Um, you know, uh, 
helping the child or not using physical means, but you're also giving the child an opportunity to learn about reasoning, negotiation, maybe some other cognitive abilities that perhaps help them overall in their yeah, development. Absolutely. How about emotional development? How do you think, it, you've alluded to that as well in terms of the issue of connecting. Right. So emotionally, um, in adulthood, this again points to aggression or antisocial behavior. So poor emotional control, um, lack of emotions when you talk about antisocial behavior, poor mental health. So the depression, the inward turning, um, what studies have found is that they actually have inter- internalizing behaviors like depression and anxiety, but then externalizing behaviors like aggression. So they kind of get both um, and they get hurt at both ends. Um, and then, of, of course, like you talked about earlier, is the abuse of their own children or their spouse. So it's the cycle. It's the never ending um, generational pass down of this method of hurting one another. Yeah, I also had another fact that, that I thought was interesting along those same lines is this whole idea of attaching, like we talked about a child attaching to their parent or, or caregiver, that is that kind of security is vital for the children's sense of well-being and the feelings of safety within and outside the boundaries of the family, mm-hmm. and also vital in the development of conscience. Mm-hmm. So that if you impair that attachment... All of those other things can kind of fall by the wayside. Exactly. Um, so what's the bottom line? What do you take away from your review of all this research? What's the takeaway? The, the bottom line for me is that corporal punishment is not the most effective way to discipline our children. Um, it, in fact, is, has been proven over and time and time again that it has negative effects that are lifelong and that although it's pervasive in our culture, that we really need to change those cultural views that this is okay. It's it's not okay, and it's not the right way to go about these things because there are better ways. So give us some examples of, very briefly, because we only have a little bit of time left, when we talk about alternatives, what kinds of things can a parent do? So for me, the definition of positive discipline um, is something that's nonviolent, it's solution-focused, and it's respectful to the child or learner, and it's a- appropriate for their developmental milestones. So, so I think often we forget that children may not understand what we understand. So when we're talking birth to 12 months, there's no um, time that discipline isn't appropriate, right? So during that time, all you're doing by disciplining them is actually establishing a schedule. They know when they're going to be fed. They know when they're going to um, have sleep time. And that's discipline. That's a set schedule. From one to two years, it's about childproofing. So it's not a no environment. You're not constantly saying no you can allow them to explore terrible twos that's when defiance but it's not actually defiance it's them trying to explore their environment so you want to um, often teach them their emotional vocabulary so they can express that to you ages three to five consistency timeouts praising good behavior that is the number one and best way to discipline your children lifelong is praising the good Thanks so much. I wish we had more time. That was excellent. And I really think it's a lot of food for thought. My guest has been Dr. Megan Jacobs. She's a pediatric resident at Upstate Medical University. And I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Curtis Harrell is a poet and teacher, a builder and a musician from Rogers, Arkansas. He sent us a beautiful poem about nature and family and the uncertainties both live with. Ice Storm, Your Last Month. All evening we listened to the sky fall into the trees. As the dusk gathered grain by grain, the weight accumulated until the great branches creaked. Around the house the old boughs bowed, touched their knuckles to our window panes. Then, at the yard's edge, one branch buckled. Soon a limb knocked the mailbox from its post. And as the darkness fell, far off and close, We found the sounds of each tree's ruin betrayed its species. At the breaking point, pines popped like potshots, plummeted from treetops. But the oaks surrendered when one sinew split, 
and the limb, shoulder-ripped, tipped earthward. Arcing through the hundred years it had risen in the air, crashed like a chandelier, crystals skittering across the porch. After midnight, as we heard the silent storm wreck the architecture of the woods, came what we expected, the nightlight extinguished. The subterranean thrum of the furnace ceased. The cedar lay down on the cellar door. When in the room's stillness we could smell the cold, we called the kids into our bed. From the top of the linen closet, the quilts came down, and we settled under their weight. We heard the ice mantle and dismantle the forest, holding one another for heat. Toward dawn, nodding in our wooden shell, we did not know what world light would reveal. We knew we could not know of those we held in that blanketed embrace, parent and child, companion and spouse, who might fall, who would bear up. for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week as we take a closer look at integrative medicine for children. How can yoga and aromatherapy work wonders? Plus, we'll get an update on children's vaccinations and take another look at autism and how it relates to mental illness in children. If you'd like to listen again to tonight's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings on at Upstate, you can find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, or check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>